pretty smart ladies. Because people have opinions. I did a weird thing, then you did a weird thing. Weird in a way that was not my weird. Well, if you have enough peanuts, it should just bring harmony, right? Everybody, get down. Get down on the ground. Get on your knees, because we need to be small. We're supposed to exercise and eat healthy food and drink water. Leave me alone. I'm not going to bed at the same time every night. Um, Everyone, Michelle used her mom voice. <laughs> I mean, and I, I don't want to compare my kid to dogs. It might be squirrel murderers, but we still like ice cream. <laughs> when will my friend die? When will my friend die? Hmm. This one's a challenge. My, both of my eyes are twitching. What? That's the first thing. It, the, our very first thing is just going to be going, what? So What? <laughs> what is this? Where are we? What's happening? <laughs> this is Angriement, the podcast. Welcome. I'm Michelle. And I am Catherine. Every episode on Angriement Podcast, we bring you... A weird thing. A pop culture thing. And a research thing. And then we try to fit them all together, bring harmony with them and to you in like a fortune cookie statement. That's the plan. This is episode 15. 15 15. episodes. 15. So in case you were wondering why Michelle went, what? I just (laughs) told her it's snowing here. It is late April and it is snowing really hard here in Colorado. Which we all know means Catherine will be bringing the snowmen to life very soon. (laughs) Can do it. But I'm not talking about snowmen. I am talking about something I've talked about a lot on the podcast, which is related to snow. And I wasn't going to talk about this, but the fact that it is snowing means I get to talk about it. It means that I've been proven right. Let me, let me get right into it. So my weird thing, before I get into that, though, I do have a mini weird thing. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I've been dying to tell you. As we all know, previously on Agreement, I have been not watching Atlanta. But I am now watching Atlanta. Woo! Very early on in the first season of Atlanta, I noticed something. Uh-oh. There's a scene. They're in a restaurant. I noticed something about where that scene was filmed. And I feel like there's a little bit of judgment last week with my pop last episode with my pop culture because I hadn't watched Atlanta. Well, that scene is filmed in one J.R. Cricket's restaurant in Atlanta, which just so happens to be where one of the penultimate scenes of Bad Trip was filmed. So not so And if you hadn't waited and watched them in that order, you would not have appreciated this connection. All those, it's, it's, it's great. And, and I was really, it was really interesting to me. I really love the show Barry. And I think that's when I'm going to start saying, you need to watch Barry. And this has a lot, it does something I really love where Barry will go from very funny to very serious, very fast. And it's so in control of that, that it could go really wrong, but it has a mastery of tone. And I realized this show came out way before Barry, but there are a ton of people involved in both. Oh, wow. So a lot of people who made Atlanta went on to work in Barry. 
I have actually been harassing two other people in addition to you to watch Atlanta. I'm on my own little personal crusade and I (laughs) succeeded simultaneously with you and another friend who are both watching at the same time. So trying to explain like, cause she was like, should I watch this? Because like, I don't want to be sad right now. You know, like we've had this conversation about like mood and, and and I'm like, well, like, I don't know how to answer that because it is really sad, but it's also delightfully touching and really funny and the thing that I love so much about the show uh she was talking specifically about a bus scene uh and she was like it felt like being on the bus because being on the bus is that absurd like it, yes she's like that's exactly what being on the city bus is like <laughs> <laughs> it is if you miss that because we're not on public transit right now go watch it <laughs> but it's it's the ability to feel real not in spite of the absurdism, but because of it, right? Like, yes, the, yes. It, it like is just right there on the edge, and it, you're right. It's so masterfully controlled of like absurd, absurd, absurd. Nope, pull back a little. Real, real, real. Nope, dipping back into like it. It's like a you know like a really smooth roller coaster ride where you're like, oh, that surprised me, but you know it didn't surprise the engineers, right? Like the yeah, theory, that's not your real weird thing. Not so different than bad trip. Not my real weird thing, which has to do with snow. My weird thing is squirrels. Again, my, this is another my big backyard moment, basically. So I'm realizing maybe I'm obsessed with squirrels because there aren't, there's not a lot of other wildlife in my backyard beyond bees. And we can't and interact with people, so. Can't, exactly. Why, why? No, no. And that makes me realize there are no birds here. I don't hear birds, except, except like once a week dozens and dozens maybe 50 crows will just come out into the street in front of my house and scream for 20 minutes oh, and I love crows i never get to see crows well switch places with me i want songbirds it's 50 of them is a lot though it is it's <laughs> dozens and dozens up to 50 just standing in the street screaming it's a horror movie once a week and sometimes hawks will kill something and leave it in my yard like a squirrel. That's the birds. So maybe that's Bring why I like- murdering, that's what you get. <laughs> so I like the squirrels so much. Thing, my new favorite pastime, the squirrel board, which is yes, there's an entire Reddit-like board on the internet devoted to lovely people dedicated to lovely squirrels. Not, not a Reddit, like subreddit. Subthread, no, this no, is its, its own, own entity. Thing. It's its own entity on the internet, its own domain and everything called the Squirrel Board. Um, April 2021, if you're interested, is brought to you by Fluffer and Friends. Different squirrels sponsor every month. There is some drama on the Squirrel Board. There, I mean, it's the internet. Oh, the internet. Such as junior member Hot Couture's ongoing problem, all caps, there is a sick, almost hairless, three-legged squirrel hanging out around my house. I don't know what to do. He won't let me catch him. He's desperate. He's very fast, having only three legs. He's got bald spots. I think maybe he has mange. And he seems very underweight. Please tell me what to do. Did they help? Yes. She Good. caught him. I followed it. God help you, though, if you start talking about bunnies. Sometimes people will be like, can I talk about my bunny problem? No, this is squirrels only. Take it over to the bunny board. Yeah, get over to the bunny board. Um, Why was I on the squirrel board, you might ask? 
I wasn't going to, but sure, go ahead. It makes sense. It, I mean, it made sense to me. I was like, why wouldn't you be on the squirrel board? Um, okay. It wasn't, yeah, it would just make sense from what you know about me <laughs> in general. But I was trying to research something. My weird thing, my big backyard thing is the weather in Colorado is wild. That it'll go from 75, super sunny, and then within a couple of hours, we'll have inches of snow. I now have a pet theory that helps me know when it's going to snow, even if it isn't predicted. And like I said, like I started this with, it has been proven right today. The weather did not call for snow today and it snowed. And this morning I knew it was going to snow, even though it was 70 degrees because we have, we give organic food scraps to the squirrels. Everyone knows this. They eat, everyone knows this. We know this. (laughs) Friends. friends Um, They eat everything except the coffee grounds. Previously on, we've learned that's for the bees. Those are for the bees. Yes. And they also don't eat eggshells. We put the eggshells out there. Eggshells are great for soil, so I'm not too worried about it. But at the end of the day, our little squirrel feeder box is just coffee grounds and eggshells. They pick everything else away. But I notice sometimes the squirrels go nuts over the eggshells and they'll just go get eggshells and take them to their tree, get more eggshells, get more eggshells. They just are packing away the eggshells. And I've started to correlate that with then it snows the next day or soon thereafter. And I've noticed enough to be like, is this a thing? And so I've started watching. And when I see the squirrels taking a lot of eggshells back to their tree, it does snow. And it happened again this morning. They were packing away the eggshells. Now there's snow. So I was basically just trying to do research on this. That's all it was. Was I was like, why do squirrels love eggshells in the snow? The squirrel board did not have answers, but I got to learn about the squirrel board. Imagine scrolling down my list of squirrel questions and seeing, why do squirrels love eggshells in the snow? Just... <laughs> It's a nice moment. Okay. Yeah, it's nice. Um, no one, I, I might raise it. I might join the squirrel board. It's just all lovely pictures of squirrels, you know? Um, the 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 closest I could find was Crystal said, Babe got a hold of an eggshell last week and guarded it quite jealously until he was done picking at it. Squeaky got it afterwards and ate some more of it. I figure eggshells are probably a good form of biologically available calcium. And eggs are an important supplement to the wild squirrel's diet. So I gave them another one to chew on periodically. Are my instincts right on this and saying that it's an okay supplement to their diet? Then Astra said, did you take a picture of your cuties with that eggshell? <laughs> and she did. Then we got to see it. Um, although Jackie in Tampa was a real buzzkill and rained on everyone's parade and said, you, if you're not boiling your eggshells before you give them to your squirrels, they're all going to get salmonella. And that's on you. That's on you. I mean, so I don't know. I had a thing where my kids left a cup of like hot cocoa. And when I looked out, there was a squirrel drinking from it. And somebody on my comments was like, I looked it up and, and this, you know, the, the chocolate could, it seems like a little bit won't hurt them, but um, you want, you need to be careful about this. I'm like, I'm not intentionally giving them hot cocoa. I just like looked out the window and there was a squirrel drinking the hot cocoa. It was um, a cute photo. I bet Jackie, I bet Jackie in Tampa would have your 
But I'm like, I live in the city and these squirrels are forever in the dumpsters. So they either have, you know, like developed some sort of evolutionary ability or they discern what they can and cannot. I don't know, but they're, they're, they're doing okay. The the streets are not littered with squirrel bodies. (laughs) Like, I feel like that it's. You're fine. There are far worse things in my dumpster. I really like the squirrel board. And now I think I can pretty solidly say I've been I've been like workshopping this so anyone out there who has a better one I'm sure you do I'm gonna say are you ready for it Maya if eggshells they take expect a snowflake that's my weird thing (laughs) that I can now predict the weather via squirrel eggshell intake that, I mean, that is a pretty elaborate system for the normal person to have set up in order to yeah. <laughs> establish relationship with your squirrels and a supply of eggshells that are available enough that you can tell when it, they are taking them more than normal. It is very convoluted. <laughs> <laughs> the level of time in my own So I can see why maybe you're the only one who has discovered this connection. <laughs> Well, now the world can know. So my weird thing, so spoiler, like all three of my things are really kind of pop culture things, but I'm going to make them fit into the categories. Let's so go. Just, just a quick shout out. I'm, I've been reading this book so slowly, but it's just because like I have all this other stuff I have to read, but I'm really enjoying it. It is a book called The Ordinary Acrobat by Duncan Wall. And it is about a guy who decides to try to join like the really, really robust um the really competitive circus like in I think he's in Paris where like they take this very seriously right like they only take like I don't know one percent of their applicants and so he's on their like um I, I can't remember what they call it but basically like their homegrown team where like people can come and take classes there and most of them are in the hopes that they will eventually work their way up into their like elite competitive area um but they're basically they kind of let him in for journalistic purposes. He has no training as an acrobat. <laughs> and so it's it's kind of, it's like part memoir of his experiences of trying to become an acrobat and then part history of the circus. And it's just a really interesting read. Uh, I really love that kind of, um, like I did my dissertation on alt-dis, which is the connection between like people telling their personal stories and then like doing some sort of academic research. So I would actually put this in that vein, though I doubt that this man was... Like I doubt that was how, that's how he would classify himself. But that kind of like back and forth between like, here's my personal story and all these emotional reflections. Here's this hard hitting research and all of my millions of sources and like kind of bouncing back and forth between them. I just enjoy that as a yeah way to express information. But so my weird thing comes from this book and it is about juggling. And so he has this... In fact, I haven't even finished the section on juggling, but this fact comes out of that section on juggling. And um, it's particularly, it's about how difficult it is for jugglers because audiences can't appreciate their expertise because doing juggling well requires such a refined ability to see what is hard and what isn't. So like a lot of jugglers are just sad all the time because like their audiences just want like, what the audiences want them to do is not actually skillful work. 
And so they're like, fine, we're going to go do the Vegas show or whatever. But they, but they like, they only get to be like really appreciated by other jugglers who are like, oh my gosh, that really detailed thing you did was really, you know, amazing. But they're like, their audiences don't ever really appreciate that. And so my specific weird thing is that um, a man named Paul Sink Valley, I think I'm hoping I've got that right, performed for a king and queen. And, um, Spent nine years learning how to catch an egg without breaking it. Nine years. Nine, nine years. years. Dedicated practice. And the audience was so unimpressed by it that he had to drop it from his act after he spent nine oh, years man. And so um, this author of the book, Duncan Wall, is, is exploring how like this is true of a lot of circus arts that like the technical precision of it is not always appreciated by the audiences. Um, but he says that a lot of other circus acts have secondary pleasures, as he calls them, of either danger or majesty. But jugglers really don't have that. Like jugglers and and people, we just there's a cognitive inability to understand how many items are in the air after so many. So like once we hit like the number, it's dis, it's disputed which it is, but somewhere between five and seven. Our brains just are like, well, there's a lot of things in there. <laughs> so like, you could have seven or you could have 90. That sure is a lot. Like, <laughs> so there's so, just like no real payoff after that to learn, to keep. Oh, so that that's my weird thing is the the plight that, of jugglers in trying to get people to appreciate the difficulty of what they are doing. Their true talent. I guess that's why they end up just lighting everything on fire. Well, so us idiots will enjoy it. Yeah, it's like secondary pleasures. I'm like, oh, this is why we have to like combine juggling with sword swallowing. And then there was a guy, there was somebody who died, a juggler who died from like swallowing a sword that went wrong and like cut, oh. cut the inside of their. So I'm like, oh. when the true talent is to catch an egg and we're like, boo, I don't know. We don't care. need that. Nine years and Nine no years. cared. I'm sorry. I just have to sit with that. Right? No. And it doesn't, I mean, it presents it, it doesn't present it as quite as tragic as I read it. I was like, oh my goodness. No, but I read that as tragic. I think part of that is like, maybe I, I, uh, I've been grading a lot of like senior theses, like the biggest work these students are going to do in their undergrad life. And I'm trying to convey like, when you really are a master of your research and writing, it looks easy to the reader. And so I keep telling them, you're making this look effortless. And they're like, but I did so much effort. Like, right. Like, so no, maybe that's, that's why it's hidden is it, tragic. Like the saying is that in math, we teach students how to show their work and in writing, we teach them how to hide it. Yes. Yes. Catch your egg, sir. Catch your egg. <laughs> Ready for pop culture? We're ready for pop culture. Michelle, um, does the name Jane Jensen ring any bells to you? I don't think so. Okay. It's about to. Okay. <laughs> I I'm know ready. you know this person. Even if you don't know, you know this person. Um, I read a really great article that I will link to from Vice on Jane Jensen and what Jane Jensen is up to these days. And I will preface this with, interestingly enough, Jane Jensen was a game designer for Sierra in Sierra oh, Games, Sierra Day, Games. Day, who 
is also, she did their most popular game. She was the biggest designer there. Also made their most unpopular game and people blamed her for Sierra going under. And then she kind of was kicked out of the business and that and the kind of games Sierra made, adventure, narrative games, click and point games that she was known for, fell out of favor. And she, um, and they take a lot of money to produce. So she started writing this was about how she started writing um, kind of fiction novels and erotic fiction, and she hated it. She's like, I don't like doing it. I don't think I'm good at it. I'm a good game designer. That's what I do best, but I can't make money doing it. And she made so much money writing this erotic fiction, so much money. Like she can make a really good living, and yet she wants to be a game designer. Then she wrote a novel that won huge awards, like really critically acclaimed, didn't sell at all. But you will know Jane Jensen, and I want to talk about her in the pop cultural zeitgeist, but this got my mind thinking about her. This article just came out. She made the Gabriel Knight series. I was going to say, is she, is she Gabriel Knight? Okay. She's Gabriel Knight. For those of you that don't know, Gabriel Same Knight, um, you should go pay, play Gabriel Knight. Gabriel Knight is a trilogy of Sierra games that came out in like the 90s. And it's he, like hours of mine and Catherine's life. Michelle and I played a lot of Gabriel Knight. The first game takes place in New Orleans, and it's about kind of a roguish guy that um, delves into kind of murder mysteries that have a magical element. That one's about like voodoo murders. And then the second one is about werewolves. And the third one, I don't think, um, if you haven't played through to the third one, is about vampires, but vampires who are vampires because of Jesus. It gets wild. It just has such a history in me and my friends and family's lives. Like I played it with Michelle when I was little. My little brothers would just sit in my lap and watch me play it so that they have good memories of it, even though they didn't play it. Um, before the internet was like easy, before we could just Google anything. Before Google, this game came out when Google wasn't a thing. My brother and I, if you got stuck in the game, we would call on the phone, my cousin, Jonathan. Oh, yeah, I remember that. He had beaten it. And that was, you couldn't look up a walkthrough. We had to call him and be like, Jonathan. Your cousin was the like hint board. Yeah. The, one of the highlights, it's weird to say like a highlight, but one of the highlights of the pandemic throughout 2020 was pretty early on, there was a very cool Twitch channel called Corin TV that came out of Baltimore, which was kind of like an artsy channel. And one of my brothers um, live streamed himself on that channel playing Gabriel Knight 2. And I just loved watching him live stream himself doing that. And one of the ways my, my husband and I, very early on, probably the third date we ever went on, turned into me being like, have you played Gabriel Knight? He said, no. And we played it for three days straight. We just played it in his apartment. Third date turned into a three day long weekend of just playing Gabriel Knight. So I love, this game means so much to me. And so of course I wanted to know what Jane Jensen who created it was up to. And then the third game of the Gabriel Knight series didn't reach the same success and wound up being the final game published by Sierra following the decline of the point-and-click adventure video game industry. And people do often blame it for Sierra's decline. 
I will say there's a specific puzzle in that game that people specifically blame for that game being so bad. It is such really unfair. So unfair. It's such a reviled puzzle that it has its own Wikipedia page. That puzzle. Puzzle? What's the puzzle? Yeah. Not even an offshoot of the game. It has its own page. I will link to it in the show notes, but it's called Cat Hair Mustache Puzzle. (laughs) The single most thing I am most proud of my husband for. He's done major accomplishments. He's won awards. He's published books. I am most proud of this accomplishment. He is cited in that Wikipedia article. What? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So if you go to Cat Hair Mustache Puzzle... (laughs) can see him cited as an academic story. Why is he cited in this story? He wrote an article about Gabriel Knight. (laughs) I also like this quote a lot from the article. Gabriel Knight, her trilogy of paranormal mysteries blending historical research and supernatural ritual is still her definitive work. If you played the Gabriel Knight at the right age, I want to say 11, 12, They were like reading your first Stephen King or Anne Rice and feeling that here was the end of your childhood. (laughs) I'm like, that's right when we were playing this. Yeah, we were right. We were in the sweet spot. Yeah. So she says, I'm an okay novelist, but a really good game designer. And it is overall, this um, article is just really interesting about how after she was kind of panned as you're the reason point and click narrative games died, how she went on to be an author and how she has gone on to make more games, even though it's a really expensive enterprise. And that made me really happy. So ultimately my pop culture thing is I'm currently playing all the video games that she has made. The one I'm on right now is called Mobius Empire Rising. This game is especially awesome, but you're like this antiques art dealer and your superpower is visual analysis different people in it are the whole theory is that like people are being reliving famous historical lives. So you have to guess who they are as famous figures from history. So this sounds so fun. Is it, it's just on a computer. Like what platforms can you play it on? Yeah. I think you can get it, get it on like steam or any general gaming platform. And if you love history, go for it. If you love Gabriel Knight or Jane Jensen or Sierra games, or if you secretly wish your superpower was visual analysis. Who doesn't? All right. My pop culture thing is I'm going to try real hard not to just geek out. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to fail. All right. Um, so I love time loop movies and those. <gasps> yes. I love them. I love bad ones. I love good ones. I'm obsessed with them. Like, I think that's a lot of what I like about The Good Place, which is probably my favorite television show. Um, I teach classes on it. So recently, I have I love Russian Doll, and I'm really nervous that they're making a second season. because like, I know! I'm really nervous about it. I, I want to trust those creators because, like, they did such an amazing job with season one, but I'm like, please don't ruin this because I'll, I'll just have to pretend like it doesn't exist because I really love it. Because you're going to watch it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I have yeah. to watch it. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, like Russian Doll, The Good Place, as far as TV shows that play with the time loop, obviously Groundhog Day is like the sort of quintessential time Classic loop film. Um, I recently watched The Map of Tiny Perfect Things with my daughter, which is like a young, like a, you know, YA novel-ish. I don't know if it was a novel first, but it's a, a, a time loop 
where a teenage boy and girl are stuck in it together and every, every they're reliving, but they, you know, their days are different because they're just waking up and the day is playing over and over again, but they have their memories, but everybody else is just existing. So they find each other. Um, and then so kind of like Palm Springs, which is the one I watched most recently on your recommendation. And, um, where it's kind of two people together in the time loop and having to negotiate that and get to know each other so well over it. Um, I guess to some extent, even like, which is not a good movie, but even like the 51st dates plays around with like, what is memory and having to, to relive stuff. So anything that plays around with that sort of temporal slip is really fascinating to me. And I've been trying to figure out, I'm like, why do I love these things so much? Like, what is it about these? And it was while I was watching Palm Springs, right after my daughter and I had watched Map of Tiny Perfect Things together, that I was like, I get, I think I figured it out. And I actually, I want to write about it. Like, I want to do some sort of about it. But I think what I find so fascinating about it is what it says about time and the value of time in terms of what humans could do if they had more time. In particular, though, what is so interesting to me is that the skills that somebody can develop when they're stuck in a time loop, they um, eliminate the permanence of like writing and note taking because you like think about, so like Bill Murray's character in Groundhog Day, he learns how to like play the piano and do stupid card tricks. And I like, he learns like these skills that your brain retains without you having to like take notes and um, memorize things. And in the map of tiny perfect things that from the title, they literally make a map of this, like the day in the town that they're in, but they have to redraw the map every single day because at the end of the day, the stuff resets. So like they can't keep notes, right? Like they can't, um, and the reason I thought about it in Palm Springs, I'll try not to spoil this too much, but at one point, one of the characters goes and learns quantum physics, like has to like goes to lectures and reads all the books. And I, as I was watching, I was like, she can't do that without taking notes. Like, I just like, <laughs> I think they even show her taking notes, but they don't stay. I didn't even think about that because like I rely on notes so much that because I wonder, because I I am somebody who has a lot of anxiety, um, which we've talked about in here before, and a lot of my anxiety is around time, right? This sense of, like, not having enough time, not being on time, and, like, so there's something kind of attractive about this idea of, like, oh, I could just do it till I get it right. Like, I could just... I could just have oh, yeah. this endless amount of time to get it right. Um, but then I'm like, but I couldn't write anything down. And it just, it makes my- Oh, the anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> I've never thought about this. Oh no. Well, and so, I mean, there's a whole, because my, my field is rhetoric. There's a whole body of scholarship about the permanence of, I mean- when we started writing, there were people who were against it because of its permanence, right? Like they were like, this is corrupt. It can be there and people can use your words against you later because you could write it down and they can take it out of context. Everything old is new again. I say this about every technology. Like they said kaleidoscopes. The kids were walking out into traffic, not paying attention because of kaleidoscopes. I didn't know that about writing. That's so amazing. They would take it out. I mean, it's the same thing we say about recordings right about like yeah. audio recordings or video recordings that'll get taken out of context and te- yeah. context and used against you um and there's also like walter ong uh, that is all the stuff about like the presence of the word and there's all these ideas about permanence and um 
oral culture versus written culture and how it shapes our brains. And I just am fascinated by the way that time loop movies play around with uh, this idea, because I think we've talked on here before about how I have a very weird relationship to self-help culture. Yes. (laughs) Because I I had to read a ton of self-help books for some ghostwriting gigs, like a ton of them. And most of the time I was just a skeptical little like, what is this? Like, you know, I was not reading it with much sincerity or, or seriousness, but like, it's, it's like mining for gold. Like, you know, there's a lot, you're going to sift through a lot of nothing, but every once in a while you're like, oh, this is useful. I'm going to keep this for later. Right. Um, and one, one of the few self-help books that I've read there, I was like, oh, I feel like this person is genuinely giving advice that is useful to me was, uh, it's a book called getting things done. I can't remember who it's by now. Um, but it's called getting things done. And the underlying principle of it is that your brain is not a storage device. Like that that's not what brain brains are processing devices, not storage devices. And so if you try to use it as a storage device, you will set yourself up for failure because we know that like memory is fallible and that we're not good at keeping track of things in our minds. And that if we tell ourselves like, oh, I'll just make this list and I'll remember it. We usually won't, or we won't remember all of it, or we'll misremember it and not even know we're misremembering it. And so like a lot of the tips in there are about like, write it down, right? Like make yourself a list of these are the things I need to do. Make yourself like use paper, use electronics, whatever system you want, which that's where I get annoyed with a lot of self-help those sort of time management systems. So like if you don't do it this way, then it won't work. And this book wasn't like that. It's like, look, I don't figure it out yourself, right? But stop relying on your brain to hold that information because that's not what it's for. Your brain is for processing information. Uh, and I feel like these time loop movies play with both of those concepts because it kind of suggests that like humans become their best when they just get to kind of build on a skill over time without having to worry about retaining, right? Like if I just get to practice piano every day, I'm going to get good at piano. Or I think in one of them, they like play the perfect video game of Pac-Man because they've gotten to play Pac-Man so many times. And those are skills that you wouldn't have to like take notes on or keep track. You would just, if you did it every day, you just get really good at it. I'm already, I wasn't, but I'm thinking of the juggling now, right? And the egg and the... But yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's like because right, that's it's a thing. It's like a you don't sit and take notes on that. But quantum physics, but quantum physics, or like you know, I I just thought about because I was like, what would I do if I just had all the time? I'm like, oh, all the books I would read, and then I was like, but none of my annotations would be in them <laughs> the next day, and it really made me sad. Aww. Like I was like, I wouldn't want my books without annotations because like I. I don't have a great. It's even sadder. You couldn't help it. You'd still make annotations. I would have to. And they'd just be gone. They'd just be gone. Because like, I don't, I don't have a great memory. Like I'm not very good at recalling things. We've talked, I have um, aphantasia, so I don't have a visual. I don't have a mind's eye. So like, I can't recall things in a lot of detail, but if I pick up a book that I have taken notes in from 10 years ago, when I see my notes on the side, I remember mm-hmm. so much about like, oh, I remember responding to this. I remember, oh, th- somewhere on this side of the page, there's going to be a note about this because I was really mad. And like the concept of memory palaces, memory palace. I don't know if I know this concept that they drive me wild. Like people who are super good at memorizing, they say, oh, well, the best way to be good at memorizing is make a memory palace. 
And it's this thing that you visualize, which is well, usually see, a house. That's where I'm, I'm already broken. So yeah. And they're like, and I can't do it. I don't understand it. I guess I don't visualize enough, but they're like, yeah, you have a, you have a huge house and like everything is put away in a place. So if I, and oh. it is so foreign to me, I can't understand it. I know. I, it's like, if I ever heard of such a thing, my brain was like, well, that has no use for us. So I, we just thought, <laughs> <laughs> oh. not for you. I'm just, I'm really interested now in rewatching all of these time loop movies with that specific thing in mind. Yeah. And, um, how we, how we think about human skill and permanence and note-taking and. What would you do? What would be the, so you would still read. I would have to read. I don't like, what would you do? Said to myself as I'd keep like wanting to write and do like research work, but I, I did not even stop to think that any writing I do is not going to stay. Yeah. That's really upsetting me. I'm upset, Michelle. Well, I mean, because like so much of what I do professionally and for like personal interests is kept in records through the written word, right? Like so much of it is offloaded. Like my skill is not like juggling, right? Like my skill is not like learning to play the piano. None of my talents in this world are muscle memory or with my body. Oh gosh, help me if I have to do that. Well, and that makes, I think that's so interesting to me too, because like, I think that there's uh, probably some overlap with like disability studies, like embodied talents versus like, so I I just, I think there's a lot there. I think it's, it's worth exploring. I guess they just get really good at skateboarding. A lot of the things that I enjoy in life would be off limits for me in a way or, or deeply muted by, by that permanence. Yeah. Would you do like, would you go the outrageous route? Would you start like robbing places or running around? No, I don't, like even in games where like, that's a, like, <laughs> no, I, I just, I just don't have fun being the, the like chaotic agent or whatever. Like, I mean, you know, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not up in some moral high hours. Like I would never do that. I would never, you know, rob the people in Grand Theft Auto. I like, you know, I took the ladder out of my Sims swimming pool a few times. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not, my hands are dirty too. Um, but like, it just wasn't fun. Like it just, I was like, okay, this is just not fun. Like it doesn't, it doesn't feel like I have some secret desire that has been like tap, tap, tap down that I want to let out. I'm like, I just don't want That's to commit crimes generally speaking. Yeah. So I mean, would it just be like hedonistic pleasure? Would it just be like, oh, I mean, how many chocolate cakes can you eat? Right? Like, yeah, that's my, my first thought is like, yeah, I would definitely go eat at like really nice places. And I would probably learn how to cook and bake. Cause that's a skill that you can, you can build on without having yeah. to the written stuff. Like that's something you can um, never clean my house again. Oh, never. I guess a lot of the joy is in the freedom of not having to do so much yeah. because so much of what you do doesn't count anymore. But I never thought of that as a horror and you've opened my eyes to it. And it'll never be the same. We have a grab bag. I'm so excited. Oh, 
Oh, I'm so happy to have a grab bag. I have not. I'm opening it right now. This is my first time looking at it. It is, um, we'll read it out. It is a written grab bag. This grab bag is from Kathleen. And it says, I'm a bit intimidated by participating in Angreement. It presents an oasis of loveliness in our current desert. As the previous grab bag participant noted, whose name escapes me at the moment. Oh, it's Robert. Michelle and Catherine make it seem so easy and they do such a good job. Aw, thank you. Aw, thank you. My contribution is in the area of pop culture. It is about a book written by Guy Branham titled My Life as a Goddess, a Memoir Through Unpopular Culture. Un in parentheses. Ooh, unpopular culture. Given that title, perhaps my contribution should be described as being about unpopular culture. I'm already... Very, very intrigued by the concept of unpopular culture. I love it. Because if there's popular culture, there has to be unpopular culture. Yeah. Through a series of essays, I love series of essays books, uh, Guy recounts his experiences feeling like he was on the outside looking in as described on the book jacket. The book jacket goes on to state, self-taught, introspective, and from a stiflingly boring farm town, he couldn't relate to his neighbors. While other boys played outside, he stayed indoors reading Greek mythology. And being gay and overweight, he got used to diminishing himself, but little by little, he started learning from all the strange, lonely outcasts in history had that come before him, and he started to feel hope. Aw. I... I read this book slowly, an essay at a time. It was at times heartbreaking. Also, it was erudite and funny. I came to love this book when I read the chapter, Babette Can Cook. I couldn't <gasps> believe it. Several pages into the chapter, he uses one of my all-time favorite movies, Babette. I was going to say, I love Babette's piece so much. I've never I seen it. I was hoping it was a reference to that. I um, was lucky enough, an undergrad, to take this amazing class called um, Contemporary Religious Art. And they just showed us the coolest movies and they showed us Babette's Feast and it just blew my mind. It's very good. Sorry, go ahead. (laughs) I'm just very excited to think about Babette's Feast. Several pages into the chapter, he uses one of my all-time favorite movies, Babette's Feast, to illustrate his own experience and it was magical. He describes the movie as one of those well-reputed foreign films from before your time that you've never seen (laughs) that people have told you to watch. Yes. Yes. This made me smile. That's it. I'm immediately reading this book. That's perfect. (laughs) This made me smile since he clearly didn't imagine me reading this book. I saw the film at the theater in 1987, the year it won the Academy Award for Best Foreign Film. I have seen it at least one time since, and it made a huge impression on me. Reading this chapter and his description of the film brought it all back. I have forgotten the film is based on a short story written by Karen Blixen, a.k.a. Isaac Dennison. He mentions that Karen Blixen was portrayed by Meryl Streep in another film I loved, Out of Africa. He writes, that's how deep the 1980s prestige movie cred of Babette's Feast goes. It was written by a Meryl Streep character. He goes on to... He goes on to describe the plot of the movie in a basic way. He then expounds on its message and the main character's actions. He interweaves it with his own experience and actions in a loving and lovely way. He states, quote, it is fundamentally about art and generosity. Reading this chapter made me happy. It caused me to relive my own experience of seeing Babette's Feast, and it made me happy to have shared the experience with someone so different from me, and it made me glad that Guy Branham has built a good life for himself. I recommend his book. It contains some amazing surprises. For example, the farming community he grew up in contained lots of immigrants from the Punjab. He demonstrated more than a passing acquaintance with their culture and cuisine. He also shares his own interesting cultural background and how it manifests in his life. I also highly recommend watching the movie, Babette's Feast. 
It is a Danish film, so you will need to be prepared to read subtitles. I am always <laughs> charmed when surprised by a serendipitous coincidence. The fact that Guy Branham and I, people from different generations, geographic regions, educational and professional backgrounds, very different lived experiences, love the same thing, well, it's magical. Oh, oh, oh. so much. Got some nice words for us too. Michelle and Catherine, thanks for letting me participate in the grab bag. I'll be looking forward to hearing the grab bag song. Ooh, yes. <laughs> I love that song. I sing it. It gets stuck in my head sometimes. As, as well as how you will connect my contribution to your own contributions to today's podcast. You always make me think and smile. A great combination. Thanks again. Aw, thank you, Kathleen. We love it. This has made my whole month, if not life. I'm going to have to watch this so movie. Happy. I'm excited. Bevin, it's so great. Oh. Okay, I'm very excited. I have some connection ideas where I get to talk more about Bobette's Feast, so I'm going to sit on it. Ooh. My research, um, I didn't know where to put this. It's not pop culture, I don't think. I would hate to put this in pop culture. And it's not weird. So I'm going to say... That so by default, it's not research. It's by default, it's not research. I think it's research. I'm gonna, I'm gonna explain it. We were talking, you know, it. I love, I love doing this podcast. This podcast started in agreement because um, we would have phone conversations and we would just get so frustrated and sad at the world and we didn't know how to talk. And so having like a structure and this outline helps with that. I really, um, we, I think we were both people who are goal-oriented, fairly ambitious, and can, can, if there's a carrot, we will chase that carrot. And we're also, like, neither one of us are, like, small talk people. Like, I don't yeah. want to, like, chat about, like, if, if we're not in the weeds in some deep philosophical quandary, then, like, what are we even doing? Not doing it. Yeah. So I think sometimes it does allow us to even talk about, like, oh, remember when we played video, that video game? Because there's a reason. It's for our podcast. Right. But of course, there are times where even I'm like, well, why am I doing this? What's the point? The world, there are horrible things happening all the time in the world. Oh, um, I'm not going to list them. This week, I I yeah. currently have two articles saved that I'm like, I can't read these right now, but I feel responsible for reading them and knowing what's going on. But I can't handle any more because I already read like six things that made me just sob. And I, I have to... I'll have to come back to you next week things. Yeah, I've cried And enough. I feel guilty for even having the privilege to do that, right? Like, because right, you can say. Set it aside, but I also am just like, I can't handle anymore. Right. And that, I think, yeah, that question of um, what do you do in the face of that? And also with that privilege of being able to say, I've had enough, I'm done now. Um, and so I've been thinking a lot about that. And I didn't want, I don't want to come on here and say like, well, let's, let's talk about this and work out these issues. It's not what, I don't think that's what this is, but I found something um, in my research of what do I do with these feelings of I've cried enough this week. I've had enough. I know what I should be reading. I know what I should be doing. Fair enough. But what else can I do without feeling um, just screaming into the wind or into a pillow? And so I found this thing in an Instagram infographic called the Hollaback Bystander Interven Intervention Training, which I don't know if you've heard about. It got passed mm -hmm. around a lot. Yeah. This is something 
I don't know if you think about it, especially we were talking about, right, we're going to start um, going out into the world more, hooray, right? We're going to leave our house. And yay vaccines. Yay vaccines. We're going to, and um, of course, right, we're talking about, we know we've seen, you know, more and not more, but like just constant barrage of police violence, of hate crimes, thinking about being, you know, out on the street and what happens, how can I be more helpful and so basically, this is like a bystander intervention training thing, which when I think about being a bystander and thinking about seeing something, seeing some form of like a hate crime or someone, even just someone being mean to someone, I, I generally think about what do you do? And I know, I think what I would do is like freeze up because the only thing I can think that you're supposed to do in that moment is go, hey, you, hey, bad guy. Stop it being bad. <laughs> and like, that's a lot, right? To do that, to be, I'm a woman, you're a woman. And like, to say, hey, stop it, bad guy. And then and then what? What do you do? I feel very helpless when I think about this and I don't want to feel helpless. So it's this, it was this thing, it was an hour on Zoom and they started off with, so this is research because I learned a lot. And I was like, well, how much, what are they going to do? And they started off with the statistic that 79% of people who have experienced any kind of harassment or hate crime wished someone had intervened. And even just that statistic was like kind of empowering to be yeah, like- Yeah, because sometimes I've been in a situation where I'm like, I don't want to make the person who's being harassed more uncomfortable because it's not, I mean, you know, it's not like obvious that it's like coming to blows or like physical yeah. and I'm like do I want to make you even more awkward in this moment like, like if you were just catcalled does me calling attention to it make it even yeah yeah so I know what you're yeah. exactly a lot of times I'm like oh I don't want to make it worse I don't want to bring but that hearing that number that like that high a percentage of people wish someone had and then um when someone does step in they said it was like 98 percent of people were glad that they did just crazy statistics of like this is probably the right thing to do. Cool. And then how do you do it? And it's actually, um, I won't go into too much. I'll put links in the show notes if anyone's interested. They do various things. Um, I just did, it was the intervention training to stop anti-Asian American xenophobic harassment. They have ones that are gender-based. They have ones that are based on sexuality and race. Um, there's one tomorrow I'm going to, I'm spending my time doing this because I thought it was so helpful that's um, bystander intervention to stop police-sponsored violence and anti-Black racist harassment. So it's a wide variety of things. Um, but basically, what I learned at this one is the five Ds. I like a list. I like I can take notes. And the five Ds are distract, delegate, document, delay, and direct. And again, I'll link to where you can read about what those are. But I was really surprised that the one I think of, which is, hey, you stop it. That's direct. That's the yeah. final one. And they're like, don't, that's the last thing you should do. And that's only if you feel like you can and you feel like you're in control enough and safe enough. Um, and so they had all these other things. It was as simple as the distract. They were like, which one do you think you would be good at? I'm like, why distract? That was like, they're like, sometimes it can be as simple as if you have a coffee like pretend to trip and spill your coffee and everyone might back up and be like, oh, 
or go up and pretend you know the person who's getting harassed. That's the one I've heard. Like, yeah, hey, oh, or or to like, um, even if you don't know them to like make small talk with the person who's being harassed. Like, oh, hey, where'd you get that shirt? I love it. You know, like just ask for directions. For some reason, I just have never heard this or thought about this. And it was really good to hear and learn about. So I don't know if anyone out there is is like that. Um, that that was I I learned a lot, and it was super helpful in a and, real pragmatic way. It sounds like like here's yeah things I can do. Yeah, who yeah, the, the the group that did this is called Hollaback, like okay. Hollerback, Hollaback. Their mission statement is it's a global people powered movement to end harassment in all its forms. We believe that we all deserve to be who we are wherever we are. Um, we believe we all have a role to play in disrupting harassment and building a culture where it's no longer seen as just the price you have to pay for being a woman, LGBTQ+, a person of color, or any marginalized identity. We teach people to take action and to reach across their own identities to ally with others and establish a united front against harassment. Um, they likened it to, you know, if someone drops something, if someone drops their wallet, you know as a society, you pick it up and say, hey, but we don't really know as a society what to do if someone's being harassed. It just made me feel more empowered. I'm yeah, because like, I-, I mean, you do feel so helpless when you're in those moments. And I, um, I've i been in a couple where I've seen what looked like a domestic dispute situation that looked like it could be getting out of hand. And I have, I've occasionally like, I remember one time in particular, there was a couple that was fighting in the street and the woman kept trying to walk away and the man was following her. And I, so I, but I had my kids in the car. So I I stopped and I rolled down my window and I said, Hey, are you, are you okay? And she said, no, I'm not okay. And I was like, well, do you want me to call the police? Cause I don't ever want to call the police if somebody doesn't want me to call the police. She's like, yes, would you please? And, and so that was enough to make him walk in the opposite direction. And I was like, okay, well, so hopefully that at least helped out. It was just so helpful. So I will link to them in the show notes in case you want to go sit in a Zoom webinar for an hour. They and redo the ones they've already done or do they have them? They do. Yeah. Um, they don't record them, but they, they fit up to like 2000. There was like, they said about 2,400 people were in that lesson with me. So they're really big and they do them pretty often. Awesome. It was good. I recently was, I had been working forever and was just kind of brain fried. And I saw a quiz for like statistical, which character personality quiz. And so um, I'm going to send it to you in the chat and I'm going to ask you to take it. It does stress me out a little because it makes you choose like percentages. So it gives you a a binary and you have to choose percentages. And I'm like, well, am I like 57% slovenly or 59% slovenly? I can do this. You can do this. You can do it. Okay. I'll remind you that you made me do three different card games in one. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You are owed. (laughs) Like, is this how I think of myself or how I know others see me? (laughs) How you think of yourself. This is fun. I should narrate some of this. Yeah. Um, nerd or jock. I mean, that one's very easy. <laughs> right. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I actually struggled with that one a bit because like, I was like, well, I do run and I played roller derby. I don't know. I'm, I'm definitely. You, more. yeah. But yeah. I, I was initially like 90%. I'm like, well, you know, there's a little bit of. How do, how do you define jock? Because roller derby. 
challenging. I lift, bro. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I do yoga. I'm going to put 90% nerd <laughs> for me. I'm going to stick to that initial. I'm pretty, I'm loyal. 79%. Um, formal, formal or int, formal and intimate. No, those aren't, that didn't, yeah. I guess I just, I guess, well, like we said, we don't like small talk. I'm going to assume that's more like I want to get into it. Yeah. Yeah. Like I don't want to be trying to keep on like my professional face. I want to go ahead and just be who I am. Right. Like, yeah. Indulgent or sober. um, That's going to be a 90%. (laughs) Have you ever watched Firefly? No, I've been told to watch Firefly. Who are you most like? I don't know who I'm most like. So if you go up to the top, there's a little drop down menu. And you. this is what I really love about this quiz. You can choose from all of these different um, universes. So the one that it shows you is the one from all of their entire database. What percentage is it? Is your match? 83%. I'm in, okay. I'm an 83% match. The best match between the self-assessment you provided and the profile of a fictional character as rated by other people who have taken the survey is the character River Tam. Okay. I don't know. Because that's Firefly, right? That's Firefly. 83% match with so, River Tam. But if you go and click up at the top, you can choose all from all the other universes. So you can pick like something you are familiar with. But it takes a little oh. bit because like some of the things I was familiar with, the character I most matched in there was only like 66%. I'm like, well, that's not very helpful. So my Her most match was 66%. No, 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 no. In like some of the universes. Oh, yeah. Okay. So like <laughs> that would be wild that yeah, you just no. don't match. My that most match is eighty six percent with Ms. Sharon Norberry from Mean Girls. That's Tina Fey's character from Mean Girls. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Which I don't mean girls that well but thinking back on it, i'm like it's i think that's a okay. character i mean she as much as she's a character she's fine i think she's, she's pretty great it's she's like, like it's very tina fey yeah. it's just tina fey <laughs> um some other people i got like for, when i checked other from the harry potter universe i was i was remus lupin 84 percent oh is there harry potter there is there's harry potter um, I was David from Independence Day, 83%. And that one I felt. That one I was like, yeah, that would be me. Uh, <laughs> Willow from Buffy, 82%. That felt okay. My Harry Potter is, I thought I knew Harry Potter. I've watched the movies. I haven't read the books. Nymphadora Tonks? Oh, yeah. Tonks is great. That's a, that's a compliment. You should, okay. You should feel good about that. Hunger Games. No! <laughs> Who are you from Hunger Games? Amich Ampernathy. Oh, it's because you said you weren't sober. That's true. I think <laughs> I might have thrown this, that I oversold my lack of sobriety. Uh, from The Wire, I was Lester, and I was happy with that one. 77. Who are you from Killing Eve? Oh, I you don't have it pulled up. I, yeah, I didn't do And I haven't seen Killing Eve, so I don't have it. I got Villanelle, which makes me very happy, but I don't from- think it's true. <laughs> Who are you from Schitt's Creek? Who were you from Schitt's Creek? I was not who you think I am. Aw, who who we previously my spouse guessed. I yeah. said that you were very Patrick. 
I am. I, I was Stevie, seventy six percent Stevie. Yes. Yeah. I mean, when we fought, when we watched Daria when we were younger, and of course, everyone wants to be Daria, but it was like, no, Michelle is Daria. <laughs> I I was I was fine being Jane. I'm like, no, you're so. Oh, David. I'm a seventy five percent match with David. Oh, and I'm Stevie. Aww, oh, friends. I like that. Yeah. I'll, I will gladly be the Jane to your Daria. I will happily be the David to your Stevie any day. And I, um, I was 74% Ben Wyatt from Parks and Rec, which also, I got, which, which, well, let, let me see my Parks and Rec. There's some random things on this list. Like, who are you from seven? <laughs> right? Like most of the people don't even get, uh, yeah. I am April Ludgate. Oh, okay. I think this is this is getting a little crankier than I think I am. Oh, I'm also 76% Rust Cole from True Detective, which that one rings real true. Oh, super true. <laughs> I just I love how like deep it feels. Like it feels like they're really Okay, so this is your research. <laughs> so this is the precursor to my research. Um, so my research then, I was just kind of thinking about like personality tests and why we take them and how they got to be such a thing that we are so interested in. And that led me to read this article by Robert E. Gibby and Michael J. Zicker called A History of the Early Days of Personality Testing in American Industry, an Obsession with Adjustment. So from reading that article, I found out that um, personality testing is rooted in the U.S. Army because they found out that a lot of American soldiers in World War I were experiencing shell shock when they were being attacked because how dare they have this... uh, you know, reaction to being attacked with bombs. Um, So they wanted to figure out a way to screen ahead of time for which soldiers were likely to not get shell shock versus get shell shock. And so there was a psychologist named Woodworth who was working on this for them. And he did, he, there was this big, they, they go through all the methods and the things. So they were like, doing all these interviews and all these inventories to figure out like what qualities people had that were likely to be shell-shocked versus not. Um, But it took so long that they couldn't use it in time for wartime. But Woodworth took it and adapted it for industry. And it became really, really popular in industry as a way to screen out applicants who would be maladjusted in the workplace. Because uh, this is in like the 19... 20s by this point and there's a huge rise in industrialization and so one of the big problems that like leaderships and profession were interested in were was how to keep employee like how to pick employees that were going to behave well in the workplace Mm -hmm. right and so this became a sort of um entrepreneurial enterprise of like creating these screenings for maladjusted behaviors and at the time they were mostly for like a specific behavior at a time so you could take like an inventory for you know your how much you were likely to rebel against orders or an inventory for how like all these different kind of neuroses right and a quote from the book said nearly all of the popular personality or from the article nearly all of the popular personality inventories prior to the 1950s focused on the negative and maladaptive aspects of personality So the roots of these personality tests are all about our our negative qualities, like finding, basically finding out what's wrong with you, right? And it coincided with the creation of mental hygiene as a category of mental health. The idea that like you, so they worked with like, 
prisoners and um, juvenile delinquents, but they also tried to identify like warning signs that somebody was going to have mental health issues and try to like suss them out ahead of times, like preventative mental hygiene to keep you from hitting these bad behaviors as they thought of them. And so it became a focus in the workplace on adjustment was the term. And so the idea was that if you could identify these negative qualities in people ahead of time, you could adjust them to be good workers and get them to fit into the to the mode that you wanted them to. And um, here's another quote from the article. This obsession with emotions and problem employees can be viewed as part of a greater societal trend related to emotional expression that began in the 1920s. So around the 1920s, Victorian norms that had seen emotions, even so-called negative ones like fear or anger, as useful if properly channeled, we shifted away from that and shifted into social Darwinism that suggested that any emotions of like any display of that was a vulnerability that should be avoided so that the strongest people were the ones who didn't experience those fear and anger, not just that you could harness it and use it in a useful way. So um, around the 1930s, they started doing multidimensional personality tests where they would like overlap these together. And they repeatedly found that these tests were not doing what they said that they were, that they were not effective at helping predict worker performance, that they did not like this over and over again. They're like, yeah, your, your tests are not doing what you say that they're doing. And, but experts just wanted that like sense of, um, this is my interpretation. I think experts wanted that sense of control so much. Yeah. They didn't, they didn't care. They were like, no, we're going to keep using these tests. We're going to keep, we're going to keep using this to screen for applicants. Um, and the reason that experts suggested that they weren't working was that the people who were using them were way too focused on adjustment and the maladjusted qualities of the participants rather than using them. Because this research was not saying that personality tests are useless, like, or that they don't convey any useful information or that they're bunk. They were just that they were not being used in the way that they should have been. That the focus mm. on like maladjustments and figuring out how to adjust people was the problem. So... By the mid 1930s, they had shifted. Like, make everyone uniformly have the same emotional. Yeah. Until, I mean, because mm. basically they wanted robots to go work yeah. on the assembly line, right? Like, don't you go oh, yeah. cry about your, you know, 12 hour shift. You need to stay out there, right? Like, so it wasn't until the mid 1930s that they shifted to trying to use personality tests to pick the right people for the right jobs rather than just adjusting <laughs> people's flaws. To be like, oh, well, maybe like your strengths are in this area or your strengths are in this area rather than like we only want the people who fit the cookie cutter, right? So that inspired Isabel Briggs, whose name you might recognize from the- Inspired Briggs. Based heavily in Jungian psychology to uh, type people along, I think it's 16 type lines. They they use these- um, but very much like the quiz that we were just taking, right? There's these yeah. binaries and you have to pick where you are on these binaries and that helps kind of place you um, in on the, you could be an introvert and an extrovert. You could be intuitive versus sensing. You could be thinking versus feeling and you can be whatever the S is because I'm so J that I don't even think about S's as, as existing. Um, sensing versus judging. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there is an, Article from the Atlantic in 2015 by Ilana E. Strauss, 
that says that um, it was it was really a fun article. So she went and met with a group of people who had used the internet to find each other to go and have like a social meeting of just INFJs, which that's actually, that's my type is an INFJ. So I found that really interesting. Me too. And, and she was like, oh, well, I'm an INTJ. So like, I'm really close to them. And so uh, she was kind of, and she, she told them, you know, like I'm a journalist. Would it be okay if I came in and I'm writing an article about the Myers-Briggs test and what it tells us about ourselves and what it doesn't. And she was like, it was really, you know, like I wanted to be like, oh, this is all, you know, BS. But she's like, but when I sat down, like I felt like I was among my people, right? Like they were, we, we didn't do small talk. There were lots of comfortable silences, like people wanted to talk about deep things and have time to reflect on them. And we met in a space that was not noisy around us. Like, she's like, I felt really like seen and understood. And like, I was among my people. But then, because remember, she's an INTJ. Yeah. Not an INFJ, which is, this part just spoke to me so much because <laughs> I I actually type, um, and I don't know how much I buy into the Myers-Briggs as what this is kind of my whole research thing like what what usefulness is this really but i will say that i have test i have typed an inxj my whole life like because i've been in education i've been taking these since i was a teenager forever and always i type an inxj sometimes i'm an infj sometimes i'm an intj but i'm really really close there um but i once took it like with a professional who this was um, one, one a, a job I was in at the time, like had somebody come in and there was a workshop oh, wow. on development day. And I tested, you know, I was right on the line and they were like, oh, well, I can, I can tell you if you're an F or a T, you've got, um, you're a baseball coach and your team has been um, selected. This is a little league, little league team to go to the, uh, this, this big game. It's very exciting out of town. You have 12 kids on your team, but only nine can come. How do you pick? I, I, I have, I guess here's my problem is that I don't know enough about baseball to assess it, but I'm picking on like, who are the best players? I would choose the best players and I would find a fair way of doing that. Like having retryouts. So, so you might be more T because like I started to be like, well, well, it fluctuates between F and T. I would be like, well, what kids showed up to practice and what, (laughs) who, who had put in the most, and like, I'm like, and who, you know, who's youngest, they might have an opportunity to go next time versus who, you know, this might be their only shot. And they're like, oh, well, you're so bad now. I feel like a very bad person. Like who will win? No, they were like. A T will say the best players, obviously. Like that, That's like- <laughs> so interesting. Because, yeah, mine switches, but I'm usually an INFJ, but maybe I'm not an INTJ. So I've done a lot of reflection on this, and I am an INFJ when I'm dealing with any other people, and I am an INTJ when I'm dealing with myself. That's very interesting. So you're the way you deal with yourself is different than how you deal with. If I'm making decisions for what I should do, it is almost always the like, what is the logical? What what will make us win the game? But if I'm (laughs) but if I'm dealing with anybody else, then I'm like, well, how would that make them feel? And like, not entirely, right? Like, I still I'm right on the line. But I I I 
tip over to the side of T when it's a decision for me to have to do it. And I tip over to the side of F when it's about me deciding what somebody else should do. And so I've just, that's anyway. That's interesting. That's really interesting. You can't, you can't think about your own feelings, Michelle. I can't, no, I, but that made this part of this article so fun because here she okay, is. I want to hear this difference. Here she is, this INTJ sitting amongst this groups of, group of INFJs where she's felt very welcome and, and like a part of the crowd. It's just like, and then they started having this conversation about chocolate chips. Like this, this one woman was like, oh, and then I was just crying in the grocery store because I was trying to decide what chocolate chips to buy. And I was like thinking about the fair trade chocolate and whether it was okay for me to have it or if it was hurting the people that I, and I just felt like I couldn't make a good decision. And she's like, and then everybody started empathizing with her. And I was like, you just pick some chocolate chips and move on with your life. <laughs> I guess I am an INTJ because my initial thought was like, just, you're already in a grocery store. You drove your car here. Come on. Choose a chip. I've learned something about myself. This is fascinating. So this whole article ends with a very optimistic line about how maybe the only real benefit of the Myers-Briggs inventory is that it teaches us that other people see the world differently and that it just kind of makes us like think about, oh, well, I should, I should consider that maybe you're looking at the world through a different lens. Than or I does am. it make you seek out groups? We're only people that are like you. So that was the subject of a New York Times article in 2015, same year as the Atlantic one, um, by Quinesha Jackson-Wright. That was titled something like, if you want diversity, don't use personality test. Because the idea here is that you could, I mean, like it's billed today. Like it used to be billed as this, make sure you don't get any maladjusted people on your team. But Maladjusted now meaning people that would complain about like 12 hours of nonstop <laughs> dangerous labor, by the way. Right. But now it's built as a like build a team of people with different skills and perspectives so that you have the best project. And that's, I mean, as somebody who has worked on projects with other people, I appreciate it when people have the skills that I lack, right? And yeah. I appreciate oh, it yeah. my skills fit into, like, I feel like I'm contributing and not just, um, you know, echoing what everybody else says. Like, I like that. But Research has found that if you have access to these tests, people tend to just pick the people who are like them because they're like, well, oh. no, this is the best way to look at the world. I want a team full of these people. Um, and like, I can, I mean, you know, it is, it can be really hard to have to deal with somebody who looks at the world so differently from you day in and day out. And so on some level, I can understand that impulse, but I don't think that it gets us the best end results if what we're trying to do is make sure we are looking at things from different perspectives so that is that is my research thing is that kind of history that's fascinating and it I would think as someone who studies like rhetoric and like agonistic and antagonistic like which is it like what are you I won't have you go on and on but I just want to I'm really interested oh yeah, I and I like I let, I'm a sucker for these little like especially this one that's like the pop culture one that doesn't feel like because sometimes they feel a little like I don't I don't know like, like they're leading you. Yeah, yeah, but this one we're just like, hey, look at these look at these characters because you know we love pop culture obviously, and yeah. I think that pop culture is often a reflection of our sense of self, and so to kind of see it codified in that way like which characters do you map onto it was just it was very fun 
Um, and that made me kind of curious about the history of these tests and how they, how we got here. And is this certainly a lot more fun than the original? It's not about trying to find out if you're going to be shot. Well, and I mean, the reason that they work these pop culture universes is because they so, and you always see the charts of like which characters fall and which quadrant of things, because in our idealized fictional worlds, we do have teams made up of people who each see the world in a very different way, who work together and become great friends. Like if you think about like, I mean, in any, I'm watching Avatar, The Last Airbender with my daughter, like each character represents a different set of qualities. The good place characters, each one represents a different set of qualities. I can look up who I am on Avatar, The Last Airbender. (laughs) Who who are you on Avatar? I'm Toph by fall. Oh yeah, you are. You're Toph. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know, but now I'm yeah, I'm interested. That makes um, sense. I'm Katara. Okay, that. Are, do we have to do we're it? Good. Yeah, we're ready. <laughs> okay, I have some initial. We should recap, right? Yes, we should absolutely recap. I do have some initial thoughts. So weird thing was my real weird thing was um, my new weather predicting tool of squirrels and eggshells. And again, I will reiterate, if eggshells they take, expect a snowflake. My weird thing was how hard it is to make audiences know you're good at juggling. Nine years. Nine years. Um, then we got to pop culture. And my pop culture was basically recapping the career of Jane Jensen, who worked at Sierra Games, wrote erotic novels, got back into the gaming business. And despite her best efforts, what she enjoys and feels she is best at is not what brings in the money. My pop culture thing was time loop movies and how they show us that we could have all this time to earn new skills, but not the ones that require we take notes. And then we got our grab bag pop culture. It was a fantastic one from Kathleen who told us about the book, My Life as a Goddess, a memoir through unpopular culture, especially the chapter or the the essay about Babette's Feast. Then we had research, which my research was the Hollaback bystander intervention training and learning more about what to do if you ever need to be a better bystander. And my research was the history of personality test and this fun statistical which character personality quiz are you that spans many different pop culture universes. It was really fun. But my initial thoughts are that the appreciation of skill versus talent with the jugglers, that they were not appreciated for their true work. The audience just didn't get it. And then with Jane Jensen, right? That what she feels is her truly good work isn't what's the audience making a living. Again and again, even down to the books she writes that get critical acclaim aren't what makes money. So I feel like there's that, the, the, what she feels is skillful is not what is appreciated by the audience. Um, I don't 
there seems to be this, I don't think this fits with everything though, but the My Life as a Goddess book and Babette's Feast seem to be, they said it was the book was kind of from the outside looking in and outsider perspective. So maybe there's this not being appreciated thing. Babette's Feast is, I will say, I don't think this is giving much away. It's not really a movie. That's not a movie where spoilers are a thing, I'm going to say. But um, it's about a cook who's this amazing cook and for various reasons isn't serving that purpose anymore, but makes, comes into money and makes like the best meal of their life. But the people they serve it to aren't the people who are going to appreciate that or even knows who they are. There is one person, but but like the people they're cooking for aren't people who like they're not gonna be able to discern. Yeah, they're not like discerning palates. Um, again, I haven't seen this movie for over a decade, but that's my memory. There's this beautiful moment though where they still do appreciate it. So that might not be totally, but they're right, it's about like these different discernment levels. And then um I asked you for the quiz, is this how I see myself or how do others see me? Mm-hmm. And then you said you deal with yourself differently than you deal with others for the- thinking. And the, the time loop thing is all about, I mean, because on some level, if you were only concerned about yourself, literally just yourself, you wouldn't need to write anything down because writing things down is always about kind of taking in information from elsewhere or leaving it for someone else. Right. But if you were just worried about truly just self-improvement, then you wouldn't necessarily need those notes and that kind of um, record keeping of it. Yeah. And then backstander training is about improving yourself for the sake of that external audience, right? Like the, the people who, Yeah. And part of the reason that I wanted to do it was we both said, one of the things is not even knowing how it will be taken. Like, will this help even be appreciated? I don't, that's a worry I have that I'm only making things worse, that my help is not help. So it's something between like, I I think there's something here about skill and self-improvement and audience expectations. And I was looking at the squirrels and being like, you don't like eggs. Now you're taking the eggs. So. <laughs> a, little bit, a little bit of a stretch. That one's going to be, this is going to be a stretch. That one's um, going to be a stretch. But I mean, you know, you were, well, it covers wait, everything else, wait, right? Wait, wait, The bunny people on the post, that was not their audience, right? They were trying to- <gasps> The squirrel board. I saved it with the squirrel board. Squirrel board. Yep. That they, you would think bunnies and squirrels, they are fluffy. Mammal creatures. Oh, no, don't bring your bunny. That's not Get your audience. Get that out of here. That is, this is not the group for that. We are a highly tuned skill set. We are INFJs crying about our chocolate chips. Don't you bring your INTJ logic into this room. So now we need to like put it in. Even like when I said a character that I didn't know and you went, yeah, you are. That's <laughs> disconcerting. I'm like, <laughs> is that what do you a mean? That's that feeling of of that disparate feeling of someone saying this is who you are, and you'd be like, I don't know. Like, I don't person. even know what you're talking about. Yeah. So what is it? What is it we're looking for? Because we already had expectations. It's not expectations. It's um it's- sense of self, 
like who you are and who you work at being who you want to be might not be the world doesn't care who you are. Why do I have to make it negative? The world doesn't care who you are. But it's not that. It's not negative, right? Because they still go to see the juggler. Yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, I think it's almost like no one's ever going to care about your your thing as much as you do but that's also freeing right like there's like a like that's actually and that's the time loop thing no one's no one I like that no one is ever gonna care as much about your thing as you do that's really that's that yeah that's like the with, egg that's I talk about squirrels too much that's Bubba's feast except Bubba's feast kind of upends that in a way you have to watch it you have to watch it um, and like, and like the bystander training one, which is the most serious on here. Like one of the reasons we don't intervene is because we're like worried about like how we're going to be perceived so much. But in that moment, it's not even about you. Like you're literally, you yeah. can literally just be the person spilling the coffee. Like you're not even like your personality doesn't even have to enter into it. So like, it's don't not make about yourself you. so big. Yeah. 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 I was really, one of the things they said was like, why don't you intervene? And one of the choices you could choose is like, I don't want to be seen as a white savior. And they're like, no one is thinking about you in this moment. Guess this isn't what? about you, right? Yeah. About you. Your thing doesn't matter as much to anyone else as it does to you. Yeah. I love it. This is, this might be my favorite one yet. Cause this actually is something I think I'm going to hold in my heart as a mantra. Like remind no one, no one cares about, about your thing as much as you do. <laughs> If I'm ever trapped in a time loop, I will remember it. And if I'm not, I will remember it. Well, I think that this might be our best ever because of just how calmly we're just like, okay, just quiet now. Like normally we're all very like, that's the end, blah, blah, blah. But no, we're just. No, we knew this was good. Just sit with that, everyone. Just take it. Just take it. Now, now I'm being weird. I'm going to stop. <laughs>